We're good? Okay, good deal. Romans chapter 14. We looked at this, kind of, we kind of did an overview uh, on Wednesday night. I'm debating about whether we're going to go into more details this coming Wednesday or not. This is, uh, thank you, Daniel. This is uh, another, this has been an incredible book. It's hard to believe that we're, we're really getting toward the end of it. Uh, chapter 16 is a lot of personal, and so I'm probably just going to kind of gloss on chapter 16. Um, he's greeting a lot of people and, and all of that, and um, so we probably won't spend an, an incredible amount of time in that chapter, but this is, uh, to me, a very, very rich chapter. And I want to I back up into... Verse 13, although I'm going to really focus most of, really actually focus all of my my attention on verse 17. But just to get a little bit of running start, uh, let's go to verse 13 of chapter 14 in the book of Romans and and read, follow along with me. This morning, um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version just to kind of change things up. I'm already getting some looks. I'll know at least one person. Well, maybe two people are happy. Anyway, never mind. Um, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That's an important verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning concerning this passage. Help us to have a better understanding and therefore even a better commitment at what it means to be people of the kingdom of God, to walk in righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to us this morning. So fill us with your spirit that we may receive from you. Fill me with your spirit that... Not only might I receive, but might able to share that which you desire to speak to our hearts this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. It's an interesting passage because it, it, it's, it's talking about um, this idea of eating meat. Possibly, as I brought out Wednesday night, eating meat offered to idols, but it doesn't say it in the text. 
but it's talking about this idea of eating meat and those who, who are uh, confident, if you will, in their faith are able to eat meat. Those who are weak uh, eat only vegetables. Um, and again, it's, I don't think that's a slam on those who have chosen not to eat meat in their diet. Uh, this was people who were abstaining for, for particular spiritual reasons. And the, the, and the problem with an ascetic lifestyle, and, and I don't, I think in and of itself there's not a problem. If you decide that you are not going to do certain things, you are not going to eat certain things, you are not going to drink certain things, you are not going to watch certain things. Um, matter of fact, I'm still looking for that sticker that says kill your television, so that kind of tells you where I'm at with it. But anyway, uh, and, and if you watch TV, that's, that's fine, that's on you. You know, I, I don't, it, it doesn't bother me. Um, but to live the life that we do as a form of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether we abstain or whether we partake and partake of things by which we give thanks for. Because the, this passage is, is very clear where it, where it tells us that in verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself. So it, it, it's not a matter of partaking or not partaking, but it's a matter of where are you when you partake of these things. If you think they're wrong to do them, then you shouldn't do them. If you feel that you have the liberty to do them, then go ahead and do them, but don't, don't flaunt them in such a way that you would cause someone who might be offended by you partaking of something. Uh, don't flaunt it in such a way that uh, you would offend them that you would weaken them, that you would cause them to, to stumble. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, I think a lot of thinking and a lot of prayer uh, needs to go in to uh, how we apply this particular chapter in our lives. But the, 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 to me, the centerpiece of this chapter is, is verse 16 where he says, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In other words, I think in part what Paul is implying here is that it's possible that you might have to keep a few things to yourself about what you feel the liberty to do. But don't allow that which you believe to be good to be spoken of as evil. And, and, you know, and then earlier in the chapter, actually in verse 1, uh, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I love that translation because, because so often it is that we hold to certain ideas very dogmatically and we forget to recognize that they are, in fact, just opinions. They're just opinions. And that you take those opinions before the Lord and you live them out according to what you believe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And, and, and so what this is really implying without saying it is that there is an element of our faith that is very individualized between us and God. And I may feel the liberty to do certain things that you may not, and in the same way you may feel the liberty to do certain things that I don't feel the liberty to do. I'm thinking of 
a, a man in our church, and he, he was, he was, this is years ago, the church I was growing up in, way long time ago, um, of Sam's age, all right? And this guy was a, a, a spiritual giant, really, in the church, and he had to go to Germany for like nine months for his job. And he felt very out of place because he, he found a church to tap into. But in Germany, uh, this is early 70s, they all drank beer. Even in the church, at church functions, they all drank beer. It's part of the culture. And he had an issue with that because he was a good Southern Baptist, and a good Southern Baptist doesn't drink, smoke, chew, dance, or go with girls who do, right? All right? So uh, he didn't do that. But then there was a problem. He drank coffee. And in that particular area, at that particular time, at that particular church, you didn't drink coffee. I don't know about tea, right? So maybe, you know, I know some of you like to drink tea and you don't like coffee anyway. But, and, and so I, I thought that was really interesting. I remember when our son, he was in Germany for a, a couple of years. He met his wife over there and, and um, went to a Bible college. And he came from a church where we were taught that the, um, the, with the end times and the Antichrist and, and was all going to come out of Europe. All that, that the ten toes of the statue of Daniel was all going to come out of Europe. He goes over to Germany and what do they tell him? Ten toes of the United States of America. Who's right? Probably neither one, actually. But anyway, um, these things are opinions. At times, we have nothing else to hold to than our opinions, but I and because of the fact that, follow me, because of the fact that they are identified in the Scripture as opinions, we have to be humble and open enough to the Holy Spirit to allow him to change our opinions. Because he's telling us in verse 17 that the kingdom of God, let me find it here. This is, I'm working with a newer Bible that I can't always identify. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating And drinking. So being a citizen of the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat or what you drink. The kingdom of God is not a matter of uh, of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about the kingdom of God this morning. I want to talk about what it means to walk in the kingdom of God in righteousness and in peace and in joy in the Holy Spirit. This word kingdom... Is, is the uh, Greek word basileia. The Greek word basileia, which refers to the reign of God. It can be a term that, that talks about a royal administration. It talks about, really, you could boil it down to this word, the kingdom of God is the act of God ruling. God's action in his ruling. But second of all, not only is it his actions of ruling, but is the realm in which he rules. For instance, we have a president. Well, we still have one. Okay, anyway, we have a president. And he acts out according to his office, we hope. 
And he does that where? Within the realm of the United States of America. And so it's the same idea with the kingdom. It's the king who rules, and he rules within his own territory. This word kingdom is a very important word in the Gospels. It's used 69 times. The phrase, the kingdom of God, is used 69 times in the Gospels. A similar phrase that I believe is talking about the very same thing, although some people would disagree with me on this, is the kingdom of heaven. It is used primarily in the book of Matthew. Matthew would use it because Matthew... Now, this, this really strikes me. Matthew, the good Jew who was a tax collector. Now, is that an oxymoron or what? Of course it is. But the Jews were not comfortable. They reverenced the name of God so much that they did not even say God. Matter of fact, if you read a lot of conservative uh, Orthodox Jewish writings today, even on the Internet, they will spell the word God, capital G hyphen D, as a way of showing respect for the name of God. So they referred, they didn't refer to the kingdom of God, they referred to it as the kingdom of heaven. That's used 31 times in, in the Gospels. So you have here about 100 times just in the Gospels that this phrase, the kingdom of God, is used. So Paul taps into this whole idea, and he says the kingdom of God is righteousness, uh, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, first of all, this idea of righteousness. Righteous is, is a huge word. I had like three pages of notes. Uh, I'm not going to, I, I cut them out, okay, so you're not getting all of them. You probably wouldn't want to hear it all. But it just, to me, it's, it's fascinating how diverse this word righteousness, which is the Greek word diakosune, say that fast four times, okay, then don't, um, and it really refers to this quality or a characteristic of upright behavior. This idea of being an upright or a good person of character. Um, it, it, Paul uses this word righteousness several times. I was going to go through and count them this morning, and I forgot, and then we had to go come to. So anyway, I didn't get it done. I can, you, can, you can do that on your own. How's that? But, but Paul uses this word diakosune, righteousness, several times in the book of Romans and also in other, of, of his other letters. And he mentions this idea in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, where he says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, God's quality or character of uprightness, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness, the standard of God. You know people like that? I know people like that. They have their own version of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. And, as it's, and it, when you talk to them long enough, if, and if you can ever get them to the point of what, how are you going, how is this all going to fly when you stand before God? If you listen to them carefully, often what it is that they are saying is that they are going to stand before God and want to be judged 
based on their version of righteousness, not his. That's what they're really saying. Now, what's wrong with that? All kinds of things, I think. One is that they are saying that they have a better standard than God has. That's what they're saying. And of course, when I, and I don't, I try not to do this. But when I hear that from folks, I want to get really sarcastic and basically say, in other words, really, we should make you God because you, you have a much higher standard of righteousness than God does. Or a much more realistic, right? After all, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, so things have changed, right? But God's standard, God's righteousness has not changed. And it, it's also in, given to us in, in the Bible with this, this connection or this exercise of, of, of God's executive privilege as the ruler of the universe. Just like a judge has that privilege of, of judging and making decisions about particular cases, God has that particular um, right as well and responsibility as the judge and the ruler of the universe. That's why we are at Matthew 6, 33. It says we are to seek first the kingdom of God. So Paul understood what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and its, what? Righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. If you are seeking first God's kingdom and to be a kingdom citizen, walking in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then all these things will be added unto you. Now, the problem with the, all these things being added unto you bit is just like we have our own definition of righteousness, often we have our own definition of all these things will be added unto you and what those things mean and what it is that we should have. I... I so desperately at times wish that God would allow me to give him a consult on how to be the Lord of my life. But that's an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like jumbo shrimp, right? I'll leave it at that. But it's this idea of God establishing and exercising his privilege and and also the the, the quality or the state of his, his correct judgment which his correct judgment is always focused on his redemptive action. How he judges is always focused on his redemptive action because his correct judgment came upon whom? Came upon Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And he judged sin correctly and justly and Romans I don't have the time but Romans 3 is very clear about this particularly around Romans 3:25 because God demonstrated his righteousness it tells us and we Later in the book of Romans, it tells us that we obtain the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Corinthians also talks about this as well. And we obtain the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, by faith. 
And so the first element of the kingdom of God is righteousness, but it is righteousness as we walk in faith. As I have obtained the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that in, 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 it, in itself is a change of my status from being a sinner to being a person who was born again of the Spirit. And by virtue of that change of status, I am now also empowered by the Holy Spirit by His grace. He has made me righteous. He, if you are born again, if you are saved, he has made you righteous. And with that righteousness comes that empowerment. Because the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and, uh, uh, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That means that as we walk in the Spirit, we are able to obtain these things. And it's God's righteousness is really a way of him sharing his character with those who believe in him. Those who, uh, in a sense, we, we exercise that righteousness of God morally. Which is interesting when you think about that because we are in knee-deep in a chapter that says it's not, it's not important what you eat or what you drink or the days that you recognize, or the days that you don't recognize. So that tells me that sometimes we as a church, let me change that, we as the church, because I'm not picking on any of you yet this morning, we've, we've, we've grabbed a hold of a morality that really, quite frankly, may not be completely biblical. And I think we need to allow what this is telling us to challenge us on, 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 on A, how we live, whether we should begin to abstain or whether we should begin to exercise liberty. But more importantly, within the context of this chapter, as it starts out, invite the weaker brother but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, how do we evaluate and how do we think about others within the body of Christ? whether it be what they eat, whether it be what they drink, whether it be what they believe, whether it be how they practice their worship as, like, if I can say this, would, well, it was, I won't say it. How's that? I'll just let it go. Whether they worship in a certain way, how's that? I cleaned it up for you real well. Exhibiting his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, righteousness of God in Christ Jesus in a moral sense. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 18, it says, Oh, that you had heeded or listened to my commandments. The prophet Isaiah is talking to people who did not listen to the commandments of God. And he's saying to them, had you listened? And what's the implication in listening? You become what? As the book of James says, you're not a hearer only, but a what? A doer of the word. I flipped it around, but I think it makes sense. Oh, that you had listened 
and heeded to my commandments. Then your peace, I'm going to explain this in a minute, but then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Spent a couple days a couple weeks ago just sitting on the beach under an umbrella. Um, I had to throw that in. Uh, And I just watched the waves come one after another, after another, after another. And it's like, this is, this is like paradise. And I'm thinking, Lord, I, I could take a place like this in your kingdom. I'll just sit on the beach. I'll, I'll, all rule and reign over the sand under my feet. How, anyway, but, but I thought of this, this idea of, of, of righteousness like the waves of the sea, this continuous constant. And it was almost, you could almost time the swells. I used to surf, so I understand this. So the whole time I'm just like wishing I was 20 years younger and had a board next to me. I would have been out in the water. But anyway, um, you could almost time the swells. They became, uh, what's the word I want to use? They became uh, where I could, oh my goodness, my brain just went for a walk. Um, They were consistent. They were predictable. They were almost trustworthy. That's what this is talking about, where where your, your righteousness like the waves of the sea this idea of peace being like a river that where it just flows and it just continues to flow. He says that your peace would have been like a river had you listened to the commandments of God. You see, it is conditional. It, it, it's, it's, and, and so there's a balance that has to be found. We talked about this on Wednesday night. There's a balance that has to be struck between, between this idea of liberty and, and, and not imposing your opinions on others or even allowing others to impose their opinions on you, but heeding the commandments of whom? Of God. And listening to what God has to say. Now, I realize that that act of worship, that act of submission is something that is progressive in our lives. There are things that uh, I am much more able to obey of God's word now than, let's say, 40 years ago or 50 years ago even. And I hope that's the case. And that we, we grow into this place that hopefully we have a greater listening capacity and listening and hearing and then doing that which God says. And in doing so, our peace would be like a river. Now, this word peace, this word peace from Isaiah is the word shalom. This word peace in Romans chapter 14 is a Greek word, obviously. It's the Greek word irene. And it is a word that is consistent with the Hebrew concept of shalom. We see it described in Isaiah 54, which I won't take the time to turn to, but it talks about this idea of completeness, this idea of soundness, this idea, idea of wellness, and, and, and uh, everything is being completed, fulfilled, uh, entering into a state of wholeness and unity. 
into a place where the relationship is restored when everything is really right with the world. It is a vision that I have of the kingdom of God. It is a vision that I have never seen in the kingdom of man. And if you stop and think about it, you probably have not either. But it is, it is those things that every single politician gets up every two to four years and tells you that they are going to do these things to accomplish the state uh, of wholeness, the state of equity, the state of justice. We always fall short because we already learned, we already looked at the uh, being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted to the righteousness of God, Romans chapter 10, verse 3. But this Greek word, peace, is equivalent to that which I just, just described, this concept of shalom. Um, what's interesting to me is Zechariah, uh, Zechariah or Zacharias, depending on how you want to pronounce him, his name, the father of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist was born, Luke chapter 1, and, and remember what happened to Zacharias? He disbelieved the angel who told him that uh, his wife was going to bear a child in her old age. And what happened to him? He couldn't speak. And, of course, he had a very peaceful household, no doubt, for at least for nine months, if not longer. But anyway, when he is finally able to speak, he prophesies. It's a fascinating prophecy that is intermingled between a prophecy about the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, and John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. And he kind of goes back and forth between blessing God and referring to his son, John. And, and he says in, in verse 79 of chapter 1, it talks about the day spring. He talks about the day spring and referring to Jesus. And he's, he says, uh, the day spring to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. To guide our feet in the way of peace. I thought that was a fascinating phrase. Because as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, according to Hebrews chapter 12, and we are looking unto him and we are walking, he is the one who will guide our feet in the way of peace. This way of wholeness, this, this way of completeness, this way of living in a, in, a, in a life where everything is as it should be. Because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness and it is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it is joy in the Holy Spirit. This word fascinates me. It's the word kara in the Greek. It would be spelled the English equivalent, C-H-A-R-A, which is rooted, the word kara, is rooted in the same word that we have in the Greek, which is the Greek word charis, which we translate grace. It is also rooted in the same word charisma, which we translate gifts. Gifts, joy, grace. 
three different concepts that we are taught about in the Bible that come from the same root word. To me, that that fascinates me. Because as I experience joy, I recognize that it is a gift of God's grace in my life. Now, joy to me is elusive. Now, I thought about this. Your mileage is going to vary on this one. You may not agree. That's the warning. I think joy is very elusive. The Greek definition of the word kara simply means the experience of gladness. Modern people who live in a modern world, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm glad that I live in 2022. I'd rather live in 2022 than 1222. I don't know about you. I'd rather live in 2022 than even 222. Although living in 22, if I had gotten to see Jesus in the flesh, that would have been something. In other words, I'm not knocking the time of which we live in. But it seems that modern man, who is so entertainment-driven, and and we're, we're always in pursuit of the smile on our own face. We want to entertain ourselves by what we watch, by what we do, by where we go. None of those things inherently are wrong, okay? That's not what I'm getting at. You know, it's it's like, I think often it is we want a Disneyland existence. I think a lot of people do. Maybe just not not you, Daniel. All right. I know I I said the D word. I apologize for saying the D word. I saw, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I saw a cartoon, and I'm trying to keep away from posting stupid, controversial stuff on Facebook, but I saw it on Facebook. It's a cartoon of, of, of Mickey Mouse, and he has a millstone tied around his neck. He is underwater, and the shark is just get moving in for the kill. And I thought that was a brilliant cartoon, and I really wanted to put it on my Facebook. But anyway, um, if you follow the news, you would understand it, okay? Um, But I think we have a Disneyland existence because I remember as a kid, I couldn't wait to go to Disneyland. I live in Southern California, and you'd walk in the place and get your hand stamped, and, you know, and uh, the turnstiles were weird there. Anyway, and you see the sign that says Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. And so we pursued that. I think as a culture, we pursue that. The problem, again, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that in itself, But the problem is that I don't think that we understand joy anymore. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm really trying to say. We we good now? Okay. I don't really think we really understand joy because when this was written in in the Bible almost 2,000 years ago, they had no telephone, they had no television, um, and they probably thanked the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, for not having one. But they had no internet. They had no video games. They didn't go on vacation for the most part. Um, They lived a very, very, very different life. And I think they had an appreciation for the joys of life that we as a culture have lost. 
that hopefully as kingdom people, we can reclaim. And that's going to mean different things to different people. But I, but I think because of that, uh, this, this idea of even comprehending the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and, uh, peace, and joy. I think we have, uh, to some degree, I think we had a hard time comprehending that. Because it, it, the primary verb, remember I said there was a root word that was common with gifts, grace, and joy. The primary meaning of that verb is to be cheerful, to be calmly happy. I think it anticipated Pentecostalism, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, but the, the meaning means to be calmly happy or well off. I was just kidding. All right. This idea, that, and you would even use the word, the Greeks would use the word grace when you greeted someone. Psalm 43, verse 4 says, it says, Then I will go to the altar of God. What's the altar of God represent in today's world? It's a place of worship. I will go to the altar of God. It's a place of worship in the assembly of God's people, by the way, not just a place of worship. To God my exceeding joy. And on the harp, I scratched out and wrote guitar. On the harp, I will praise you, O God my God. Psalm 43, 4. Look at it later. He says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. He's saying that God was his source over and abundantly beyond anything else he could possibly extract any satisfaction from. And this was David who had anything, and I mean anything at his disposal, being the king of Israel. But he says, you, God, are my exceeding joy. Do we take joy in God? Do we take pleasure in God? Do we take joy in coming together? And, 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 I, and I know that you all enjoy each other, and I'm, I'm so glad that's the case. Um, it, makes my, my, it makes my job a lot easier. It really does, okay? But, 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 but when, the, when we stop talking for a moment and the music starts and we start to worship, do, do you enter into these things with joy? Is God your exceeding joy? And, and I think that's just a question that we need to, that I'm just going to leave out there and let you wrestle with. You see, what I believe that Paul is talking about in this 14th chapter of the book of Romans is, is what it is like to live in the kingdom now, what it is like to live in the kingdom today. One more passage, and then I'm going to be through. Luke 17. Right around verse 20, but I may back up a few verses. It 
This is right after Jesus had cleansed the ten lepers and only one came back to say thank you. Only one came back to glorify God. All ten were cleansed, but it sounds to me like only one of them was actually converted. And it says in verse 20, it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here, or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. What I think Jesus is, is stressing so importantly in Luke 17, and I think Paul is expanding upon in Romans 14, is... What is the kingdom? Remember, the kingdom is the exercising of authority of the ruler. And second of all, the realm of which that ruler exercises his, his authority in. What is the kingdom like in your own soul? The kingdom of God is within kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is coming in its fullness. But what is it currently like inside of your own soul? Because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Paul is really trying to get us to understand and to emphasize and, and and to turn our own hearts and our own minds and our own thoughts into the submission of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, whereby we listen and we hear from the Holy Spirit, and he will instruct us in righteousness, in the ways of righteousness. And as he instructs us in the ways of righteousness, we therefore go out and we live according to that righteousness, and the byproduct of that is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I think I could have just said that last sentence and then sat down. Because I think that's where the rubber meets the road. And these things will be played out in innumerable different ways as we engage with one another, determining for ourselves what the Holy Spirit has said to us as to what we eat, what we drink, what we do, the days we observe, the days we don't observe, and how we view our brothers and our sisters who have different views on those things that we do. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is not a matter of eating or drinking. Amen.